Hello out there, we're on the air. It's Smart Prosperity, the podcast. It's a show about the green economy in Canada, the current affairs, the politics, the business, the technology, and the ideas at the intersection of the environment and the economy. We bring you a new episode every two weeks and we serve it up in 25 minutes or less. I'm your host, Eric Campbell. On today's show, can Joe Biden stop climate change? Well, maybe not all on his own. But I'll speak with Dan Vinalovich about what the president-elect's gargantuan $1.7 trillion climate plan will do. Then, can Quebec remain one of Canada's greenest provinces? With the title belt on the line, Colleen Thorpe from Iquiterre walks us through the province's latest climate announcement. On top of that, we'll get the 60-second treatment of the 2020 Provincial Energy Efficiency Scorecard, and we'll hear from my colleague Mike Moffat about what else is happening in the clean economy this week. But first... During the last election, our government promised to legally bind Canada to its commitment of net zero emissions by 2050. Yes, last week, the Trudeau government tabled new climate legislation that promises to reach net zero climate emissions by the year 2050. Net zero, that means eliminating all greenhouse gas pollution except that which we can capture or offset. Sounds good, but is it just another target, just another promise? To walk us through last week's buzz, I'm speaking with Sarah Hastings-Simon. Sarah Hastings-Simon is senior researcher at the Payne Institute for Public Policy at the Colorado School of Mines, and she's a research fellow at the University of Calgary. Thanks for joining, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Sarah, for those who are skeptical about far-off climate targets, what's different about the legislation that was tabled last week? One of the main differences with this legislation is that it does include some nearer-term targets, right? So it does have that 2030 target, and it includes a requirement for the government to put forward its plan to reach that um, in, in the very near term, you know, within like the next six months. Now, Canada, of course, joins a number of other countries who have committed to net zero uh, emissions by 2050, uh, but a smaller group of countries who have who have legislated it. it. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that kind of aspect of this legislation is and and means for maybe ultimately meeting those targets? It's an interesting question because you know how much governments can really bind the actions um, of you know of their government in the future or other future governments. You know that that's really quite limited, right? I mean, at the end of the day you know, even legislation can be changed and removed. And so what this legislation really does is, is you know, force a future government that doesn't want to take that action to be very, um, you know, black and white honest uh, about what they want to do and, and to have to repeal it. So I think that, you know, is another way in which um, legislating that future action is, is really um, powerful. So the other thing to note about this bill last week is, of course, that it's not the plan. It doesn't tell us how we're going to get to net zero emissions by 2050, just that we're going to and and the government is going to have to report on it um, at regular intervals. In terms of when we might hear about the substance of that plan, ha- have you got any impression of, of when that might be? 
the bill itself talks about, you know, a six month period um, after it's passed when that when that plan for 2030 needs to be presented. Um, so, you know, I think that's the sort of time frame that we're looking at. Um, and I think it's going to, you know, build on what we've seen from from this government already. I also wanted uh, maybe I'll take a, a couple steps back because I also am interested in your thoughts on on kind of, you know, the value of setting targets. 2050 is 30 years off. Uh, it would have been like setting a target for this year back in 1990. What's the value of of the 2050 target? So when you talk about targets, there's something to me that's really different about net zero or, you know, close to it. I mean, it's not about the zero itself, but, you know, very, very small Mm -hmm. um, versus targets when you're talking about reductions of, you know, 10, 15, 20, even 30 percent. Because in order to reach that target, it requires you know, much, much more significant and fundamental changes to our energy systems to get to that net zero. Mm. So I think that there is a, you know, unique value even in setting targets around 2050 to ensure that, you know, the, the 30 years that we have to get there, especially in the early years, that we're sort of pointing in the right direction. And what I mean by that is that you avoid a situation where you take a bunch of actions that are going to, you know, certainly reduce your emissions, you know, even by 10, 20, 30 percent, um, but are somehow fundamentally incompatible with getting down to that net zero. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could result in, you know, spending a lot of money and effort um, on a pathway that, that doesn't lead you to where you need to be ultimately. So so I do think that there's value in that 2050 target um, around that net zero um, f- for that reason. Hmm. Thanks very much, Sarah, for sharing some insights on today's show. Yeah, glad I could. That's Sarah Hastings-Simon, Research Fellow at the University of Calgary. Accord was not designed to save the environment. It was designed to kill the American economy. I refuse to surrender millions of American jobs and send trillions of American It's dollars everybody's to the world. favorite spectacle, the U.S. presidential election that just won't give up. But behind the Donald Trump theatrics is something fairly extraordinary. It's being called the biggest, the most ambitious climate agenda ever. It's worth $1.7 trillion, and it was a centerpiece of the Joe Biden election campaign. To take us on a tour of that agenda, I've invited Dan Vinolovich. Dan is the principal at Polaris Strategy and Insight, and he recently completed a deep dive analysis of the Biden climate agenda, and he's willing to share it with us. Thanks for joining the program, Dan. Happy to be here. So, Dan, tell us, what are the key features of an almost $2 trillion climate plan? Well, I, you know, I think the simpler question is what what isn't in the plan because it has pretty much anything that anybody could could want in a in a climate plan. It's incredibly expansive and and has a surprising amount of detail. But you know, I think that the key features of it are one to reinsert the U.S. into global climate politics, two to really transform how the U.S. produces and uses energy uh, and all the pollution that that is associated with the system as it is today. And third, to realign economic activity with cutting pollution. And a big piece of that, of course, is how they build back better post-COVID-19. So, Dan, let's dissect those three things. When it comes to the international scene, Donald Trump famously pulled the United States out of the Paris Agreement when he came into office in 2017. And Joe Biden has committed to rejoining the Paris Agreement. 
What do you see as, as being the implications internationally for the Joe Biden climate agenda? I think it's, there's no doubt that it's it's positive. It means that when the world's nations gather at the next COP, uh, there I think will be a, a strong consensus about the need to ratchet up ambition and do more. And so, you know, we can't discount the importance of that. But at the same time, I think you know, a lot of countries really had just decided that they were going to keep forging ahead on on climate all the way to net zero uh, by the middle of the century, regardless of, of who is president. I mean, just in the run up to Election Day, we saw commitments out of China and South Korea and Japan, uh, of course, Canada coming out of the 2019 election. Uh, we have a federal government committed to net zero. So a lot of countries had, you know, had moved on regardless of, of what role the United States was was going to play. Um, I, I think there's going to be a desire to have the U.S. show, don't tell. And so it might be in the latter part of his administration when there's a bit more of a track record of getting things done on the ground in the U.S., where we might see the broader influence of the U.S. return to what it was, uh, say, under the Obama administration. The wild card in all of this is is his commitment to explore the use of, of border carbon tariffs, uh, so to impose a, a tariff on imports to the U.S. based on their carbon footprint. Right. Um, if he follows through on that, uh, you know, that along with the European Union considering uh, a similar approach or the, the prospects that perhaps they would even co-design what that looks like, introducing climate considerations into trade policy uh, by the United States and the EU that's a, that's a game changer. And even if it's just saber rattling, I think that is going to, to, to change the global landscape around how countries are thinking about climate change, not just from a pollution perspective, but also from an economic and trade perspective. That's really interesting. And, and I know carbon border adjustments is, is something that's on a lot of people's minds and, and something we'll probably want to return to on a future uh, episode of this podcast. Um, moving down your, you know, those, those key uh, ways that uh, Biden will, will kind of approach a climate agenda. Um, your second one was about energy systems in the U.S. Where are the, where are the big opportunities to reduce emissions and, and to walk that walk in the U.S. for, for Joe Biden? Well, the, the first big thing that he's, he's pledged is to achieve a 100% zero emitting uh, power grid by 2035. So just 15 years out. And so Thanks to the clean power plan that the Obama administration had introduced, they've made great progress on shifting away from coal, but they've got an awful lot of natural gas. So that's going to have to pivot towards carbon capture and storage. It's also going to be supplanted by building out more wind, more solar, uh, battery storage, and more transmission between states. And so that really then sets them up to electrify many other parts of of their economy and, and displace fossil fuels. So in terms of heating building, empowering industry, and of course, fueling the transportation system. Uh, and so that really is the, the linchpin of them being able to achieve the, achieve the objectives he has uh, around ramping up zero emission vehicles, both for cars that you, know, you and I drive, but also for buses and getting into trucking as well. Hmm. Now, the third thing you mentioned, Dan, was of course the economic angle. Uh, one of Biden's key messages has been that climate action is, is a jobs and economic opportunity also. Uh, what parts of the plan are, are meant to deliver on that front? This is, this is where he's, you know, I think, very comprehensive and, and very bullish. Um, much of this would be tied to government uh, investment, government spending and incentives, training, 
Um, but it, it really spans every dimension you could think of. So, you know, on the infrastructure side, they're targeting millions of jobs um, on everything from from climate proofing roads and, and bridges and coastal areas, uh, but also a big focus on electricity grids and building out some of that transmission that they they need to have uh, between states to be able to to decarbonize their electricity sector. Mm-hmm. He wants to see a million new jobs in the American auto industry, and central to that is producing more uh, electric vehicles. Um, you know, a huge push on on improving buildings through retrofits. Uh, again, a million good paying jobs is the is the goal for that. Quarter of a million jobs plugging abandoned oil and natural gas wells. So you know, cleaning up the the mess from. Uh, the energy system that we need to, to to shift away from. So, really bullish and and ambitious on on the job creation side, um, and that that really comes from um, yes regulations to a certain degree, but more so from uh, from government spending, um, you know, both procurement and incentives and rebates, um, and and really just uh, paying to get the job done. Dan, this is a uh, a tricky question for you to end on because it's it's a whole world in and of itself, um, and, and it's one that we're going to explore on our next episode. But but in short, how would you describe the implications of the Biden climate agenda for Canada? Yeah, it is it is a, it is a tricky question, and I don't think there's a single answer. I think we're going to be interacting with with the United States in, in different ways. Sometimes it'll be as a, as a collaborator where we can align regulations, whether it's on vehicle emissions and electric vehicles or, or methane from the oil and gas sector. They're also going to be a significant competitor. The Canadian clean tech sector has been punching above its, its weight. Um, we're going to see under a Biden administration, they're really doubling down on, on innovation and, and support for, uh, for those, those small clean tech companies that are, are trying to scale up. Um, there might be some opportunity in, in his climate plan so long as we can get an exemption from Buy American provisions. Um, and then at times, I think he'll be a, a cajoler of, of Canada to do more. And he's going to create more space for uh, for the government of Canada to do more. And frankly, it might also put, uh, put Aaron O'Toole in an interesting uh, situation as a leader of the Conservatives, because the Conservatives have you know, over the past four years, really liked to point to the United States and say, well, the United States isn't doing all these things on climate change, and they're our biggest trading partner and biggest competitor. Mm-hmm. That that argument is going to disappear. Um, so, you know, there are a variety, I think, of both you know, economic and, and political dimensions in which this is going to, to shape our relationship. And so I think we're going to have to continue to also forge our own identity in terms of what we're doing from a climate change perspective and, and gearing up our economy to be globally competitive, in, including you know, tapping into uh, markets other than just the U.S. for our exports. Dan, thanks so much for joining the show. That was great to be with you. That was Dan Vinolovich, Principal at Polaris Strategy and Insight. Now, if you're interested in the Biden climate plan, boy, have I got good news for you. Next episode, we'll be featuring discussion from a live webinar with three U.S. public policy and climate whiz-bangs. It's a special episode, and it will look at all angles of the Biden climate agenda, including what it means for Canada. Quebec has been one of Canada's greenest provinces when it comes to climate change. It's had its own price on carbon pollution through an agreement with the state of California since 2014. 
Its electricity system is almost entirely renewable, thanks to hydroelectricity, and it's already been bullish on things like electric vehicle incentives. That reputation was on the line when François Legault became premier in 2018. He wasn't seen as having a strong inclination towards climate, with little in his campaign platform uh, and sometimes being called so much as clueless on climate change. So last week, all eyes were on him as he released a new climate plan for the province to tell us about how that went down. I'm welcoming Colleen Thorpe. Colleen is the executive director of Equiterre, uh, Quebec's uh, most prominent environmental organization. Colleen, thanks for joining the show. Hi, Eric. Nice to be here. Colleen, what's your reaction to Quebec's new climate plan? Well, I think what you have to say from the get-go is that there was a lot of expectation for this climate plan. Uh, you know, Quebec has uh, had many people in the streets, uh, up to 500,000 people asking for climate action. And there was also lots of consultation on, on the part of this government, who, as you mentioned, didn't have a plan to begin with, but then decided they had to do something. So they actually consulted uh, groups like ICTAR and other groups. So there was a lot of build-up. And then when actually the, the plan was announced uh, this week, um, there was disappointment because this is uh, a green recovery response, an economic recovery response, but mm-hmm. you can't bill it as a response to the climate emergency. Interesting. And and could you walk us through what, what you think are kind of the main elements of the plan? Yeah, so the, the plan really uh, puts emphasis on electrification and that electrification, of course, of the, the, the vehicles that are in Quebec, personal vehicles, but also, interestingly, uh, commercial vehicles. And that's a good thing. Um, there's, there's some energy efficiency in there as well. Um, and there's also a reassessment each year uh, to look at the, the measures and adjust them if necessary. Now, Colleen, the plan focuses a lot on transportation emissions, which maybe shouldn't be surprising. In in Quebec, uh, those account for about 40% of all greenhouse gas emissions, which which is big, uh, proportionate to the 25% that we see as an average across Canada. Uh, One of the big commitments uh, in the plan, and which has been covered by the media, is the commitment to phase out the internal combustion engine vehicle uh, by 2035. Um, what do you think about that commitment, and, and does this do enough to reduce emissions in Quebec's transportation sector? We haven't solved the problem if we just move from one gas car to uh, an electric car. We have to look uh, broader at, at land use uh, planning, and, and this is a big issue, and, and this is why also the government was criticized this week, because there's very little mentioned about land use planning and the coherence of government action. So we continue to have uh, agricultural land, for example, that is dezoned uh, for residential purposes, even if we have a law protecting agricultural land. So coming back to the beginning and saying that this is an, an economic plan, but it's not a climate emergency plan, is because we don't see the overarching strategy um, that, that's guiding every government decision and, and not just uh, decisions that are made in the, the Ministry of Finance. Now, the province has a target to reduce climate emissions, uh, 37.5% from 1990 levels by 2030. That's a target that was set before the Legault government. Does François Legault's plan put Quebec on a trajectory to hit that target? No, it doesn't. 
Uh, the measures announced will only allow us to achieve 42% of the reduction target, uh, which suggests that more reductions will have to be achieved. And uh, how will they be achieved? Uh, perhaps by buying a compensation on the on the market, uh, compensation credits. So it doesn't allow us to achieve our targets. And this is also uh, at the base of the criticism of the plan is that it doesn't have the ambition to respond to the climate emergency. Interesting. So still a long way to go and uh, probably the need for, for another plan in the not-too-distant future to, to ramp up that, that ambition. Colleen, thanks so much for, for being on the show with me today. Okay. Thank you, Eric. That's Colleen Thorpe, Executive Director of Equiterre. Now it's time for something we do every show. It's called the 60-second report. It's becoming more of a 60-second challenge. It's where we invite the author of a new and important report to sum it all up in 60 seconds or less. This week, I'm welcoming Brendan Haley, Policy Director at Efficiency Canada. He's going to break down this year's Provincial Energy Efficiency Scorecard. How are all the provinces doing when it comes to the energy efficiency of buildings? Brendan, your minute starts now. Last week, Efficiency Canada released the Energy Efficiency Scorecard, which benchmarks provinces across 42 separate policy metrics. This is the second year producing the report. And this year, BC was awarded top spot again. Prince Edward Island is the most improved province and took the lead in programs away from Nova Scotia. Saskatchewan is in last place. And Alberta and Ontario have significantly decreased energy-saving initiatives, which could have a major impact on national efficiency and emission goals. Of course, all provinces have room to improve. We are still not seeing the Canadian provinces reach the energy savings levels consistently achieved in leading American states. The report also contains recommendations on how the federal government can boost energy efficiency in all provinces, which we think is especially important this year to promote a green and resilient recovery from COVID-19. One minute on the dot. Well done, Brendan. You are the winner of the 60-second challenge. Now, there's only so much we can cover in depth on this show every week. For all the rest, we turn to Mike Moffat. Mike is Senior Director here at Smart Prosperity Institute, and he's here to share five other things happening in the clean economy this week. Hi, Mike. How's it going? Ah, it's going great. Great to be here. All right, Mike, what's on your list this week? Number one, the federal government has introduced climate accountability legislation to formally commit Canada to its target of net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. The long-awaited bill sets out mandatory national five-year targets to cut emissions. Number two, Shell is launching its Drive Carbon Neutral program in Canada to allow customers to buy offset credits to reduce net carbon dioxide emissions. When customers opt in via Shell's EasyPay app and pay a cost of two cents per liter, the company will calculate the amount of carbon emissions that will be produced by that fuel and buy an offsetting amount of carbon credits. Number three, Toronto Dominion Bank has introduced a global climate action plan that includes rejecting work on oil and gas projects within the Arctic Circle and moving to a net zero carbon dioxide emissions from its operation and financing activities by 2050. 
Number four, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities is calling on Ottawa to continue emergency funding for municipal transit systems, which are facing major budget shortfalls during the pandemic. The Federation believes any economic recovery plan should include new funding to expand transit networks and accelerate the adoption of zero emissions trains and buses. And number five, a new University of Calgary report finds that, over the last decade, solar prices have fallen by 90% and wind prices have fallen by 70%. These costs are not only falling below the cost to build a new fossil fuel power plant, they are falling below the cost of operating existing plants. I'm Mike Moffat, and those were the five other things I was watching this week. That's it for today's show. Remember, you can listen to all the shows on Smart Prosperity website at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Also on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you stream your podcasts. The next episode is out December 9th. Until then.